Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good day. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historic Society. I'm a host on the channel, and today we have with us Master Historian Jonathan Lord Sumtian. Our guest is without a doubt one of the leading specialists on the Hundred Years' War. He is, of course, with it, was in his professional career one of the leading lawyers in the UK, where he reached the pinnacle, pinnacle of the profession. And today, we are discussing his newest book, Triumph and Illusion, the fifth and final volume of his History of the Hundred Years' War, a book which both historians and lay, and lay educated public have waited with bated breath for a number of years to be published. And without further ado, let me say welcome, Lord Sumtian. Hi, I'm glad to be here. Lord Sumtian, what was the position of the two parties, England and Valois France, at the time of the death of King Henry V? Um, well, uh, King Henry V had ignored uh, the hit and run raid into France, which culminated in 1415 in the Battle of Agincourt, but achieved very little uh, apart from uh, slaughter and a considerable accession of prestige to the English king. Uh, he started again in 1417. Uh, in an invasion which was actually designed not simply uh, to uh, hit the French government, uh, but actually to take over um, a part of, uh, uh, or uh, as much as possible, of their country. Uh, between 1417 and 1420, Henry V occupied Normandy and some of the adjacent regions around it. Um, when um, Henry V died, the position had been uh, transformed uh, uh, as a result of a major development in the French Civil War, which had been in progress uh, for uh, the past 15 years. Um, the, uh, the parties to that civil war were the partisans of the Duke of Orléans and then the Dauphin, Charles VI's son, uh, and the partisans of the Duke of Burgundy, the most powerful of the princes of Valois, France. Uh, so uh, what happened was that in 1419, uh, on the 10th of September, uh, the Dauphin uh, had uh, John the Fearless murdered at, at a meeting which was had been called in order to settle the disputes between them. Um, the result was uh, to drive the Burgundians into the hands of the English and to create a powerful alliance, military alliance, uh, uh, which was explicitly intended not just to conquer territory, but to make Henry V King of France. Uh, that, of course, assumed uh, that Henry V uh, would survive the current King of France, Charles VI, who was uh, very ill and mentally unstable. Um, that didn't happen because Henry V died a few months before 
Charles the Sixth, leaving as his heir uh, a small baby uh, in England, who became Henry the Sixth. Uh, so the position at the, at the death of Henry the Fifth was that the English and the Burgundians between them occupied most of France north of the River Noir, uh, including the capital of France, um, it's, uh, uh, where it's the principal institutions of the state were located. Uh, but there was a stalemate because the Dauphin was advised by a particularly brilliant generation uh, of civil servants, and they succeeded in setting up a rival state with perfect miniatures of the Parisian institutions in the, in the southern towns of uh, Poitiers, Bourges, and later Toulouse. Uh, so the uh, that expansion of Lancastrian France, Henry VI's domains, was brought uh, to a halt. That was the situation in 1422. So you would say that the early death of King Henry V was a game-changer, as it were? It was a game-changer because it resulted in the accession of a, an infant king who couldn't possibly command the same loyalty and respect uh, as Henry V had done. Henry V had been uh, accepted by a significant number of Frenchmen on the basis that as the stronger party in among the, the three parties warring in France, uh, the best way to peace was to ensure uh, that he won, and nobody had much confidence in the Dauphin's ability to reconquer the whole of France, but they did think that Henry V, with his Burgundian allies, might do so. That dream uh, faded in 1422, and there's some evidence uh, that Henry V himself uh, would have been prepared to enter into a compromise peace if he had lived. What is your opinion of the regent of France after the death of Henry V, John, Duke of Bedford? The Duke of Bedford uh, was Henry V's younger brother. Uh, he is one of the very rare examples in medieval history of a good uncle. Um, he devoted himself, heart and soul, uh, to safeguarding the inheritance of his infant nephew until he should reach the age of majority. Um, he lived for 13 years after the death of his brother, dying in 1435. Uh, he was in many ways a very remarkable figure. Uh, he established uh, a good rapport with his French subjects. Uh, he uh, spoke excellent French. He married two successive uh, French noblewomen. Uh, he got on well with the Mandarins uh, of the Parisian administration, which was entirely French. Uh, he succeeded uh, in expanding the area covered by English occupation north of Iwa um, uh, quite considerably. Uh, he eliminated most uh, of the uh, Dauphin's partisans in northern France, but uh, he, his achievements were brought to a halt in 1429 with a major military offensive associated with the name of Joan of Arc. Would it be true to say that you do not have a, such a high opinion of his brother, Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester? Well, I think it's hardly relevant what I think of Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester. 
the fact is that his contemporaries of much of him. Uh, the Duke of Gloucester uh, was a, a, a cultivated and eloquent man. Um, he was extremely ambitious, but he had absolutely no judgment and only a very limited military talent. Uh, he was, uh, he took consistently a very aggressive attitude to the war. He was uh, against any kind of compromise with France or any recognition of the realities of English weakness in the face of the French, as it, as it turned out, particularly in the 1430s. Um, the, the problem uh, about Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester, uh, was that although he had a great deal of support uh, among ordinary people in England and among in the House of Commons, uh, those who knew him best and those who were at the heart of power distrusted him, and for good reasons, uh, he was uh, a, a, an appalling diplomat, and his uh, attempt uh, to uh, become ruler of two major um, principalities of the Low Countries, uh, Holland and Haino, uh, basically set him at odds with England's ally, the Duke of Burgundy. This was a major disaster for the English, because they depended on that alliance, uh, and the result was that effectively the Duke of Bedford disowned his brother Humphrey, uh, and Humphrey's schemes came to an end, but they caused a great deal of war feeling between the English and the Burgundians. Why, as you put it, was uh, English society, quote, disengaged for the most part with the French wars, unquote? Essentially because of a change in the character of the war. Uh, before 1417, um, the English had launched heavy mounted raids into France in the hope that by doing enough damage they would force the French um, the government to uh, meet their terms. Uh, this was an unrealistic ambition, it really a form of terrorism. They had not attempted actually to occupy territory in France permanently. That policy that changed in 1417, uh, and it, what it meant uh, was that the war in France was essentially a war of sieges. It, demand, it demanded a large number of permanent garrisons it required an army to be based in Normandy, which varied in strength between 3,000 and 12,000, a very considerable demand on England's limited resources. But the, um, the, the, the nobility, or the under-gentry of England, uh, could, it could not, their way of life was not consistent with being the garrison commanders. There were some of them, of course, uh, who became garrison commanders, who became the leaders of raiding forces and armies in France, and basically made their career in France. But most of the English nobility and gentry um, had, they had sheep to share, they had farms to manage, they had political interests to defend in England, and they had very limited interests uh, in being permanently stationed uh, in a foreign country. Uh, that was essentially the change that happened. Uh, the, the war of sieges and garrisons required uh, full-time professional soldiers prepared to devote years and years 
to fighting the Mulberry Shrubbers, and that was not something that more than a handful of English noblemen and gentlemen were willing to do. The result was that you see uh, that the role of veterans in English public life, and particularly in the House of Commons, that's uh, steeply declining, and you see uh, interest in um, training as a soldier uh, displaced by other interests like law uh, in the class that's really been at the heart of the war a hundred years earlier. Please expand on your statement that, quote, the main constraints on English military operations were finance and manpower, unquote. That is true of almost all wars. Uh, as William Kitts the Younger once observed, uh, the principal instrument of war is money. Uh, in a long war, uh, it always becomes essentially a contest um, between uh, the contest of resources, a, a competition in the deployment uh, of national wealth. A, a short war uh, can often achieve um, a, a David and Goliath effect, but the long war is essentially a war of attrition. Uh, England uh, was a middling European power. Uh, its population was substantially smaller even when the population of that part of France under the direct flow of the Dauphin. Uh, it uh, was uh, uh, relatively wealthy, but it was not as wealthy as France, even in its dilapidated state uh, of, of the 1420s. That manpower, the English had increasing difficulties in recruiting uh, sufficiently large armies. Uh, when you take into account the fact uh, that uh, only about a third of the population of England consisted of adult males, um, uh, and uh, that only some regions were had a tradition of military manpower. Um, uh, England, at the height of the 15th century war, was actually deploying in France um, yep. a, a number of men that was, as a proportion of its population, uh, not far short of the proportion that was conscripted in the Second World War. Um, and this was a, a serious strain, and we know from the administrative records that the recruiting officers found it increasingly difficult to persuade people to go to France. Would it be true to say that one of the reasons for the decline of English mastery of the battlefield was due to what scholars of the British Army in the 20th century referred to as the learning curve thesis, in which one of the two powers learns to adapt to the new uh, situation in the battlefield where the other one does not? Um, there's some truth in that. Um, the French adopted uh, the main features of English battle tactics. Um, uh, but, but they also, the English battle tactics had relied heavily on dismounted cavalry as opposed to major cavalry charges and on archers. Um, the, uh, the French uh, initially learnt from the English yeah, from, the, from the English tactical scheme, but over the years they also uh, found technological improvements which enabled the 
uh, mounted cavalrymen to resume his dominance of the battlefield as it had been in the 13th century. Um, so clearly there was a, a considerable amount of yearning uh, going on. Um, the English started with an astute superiority in uh, modern one field artillery, siege artillery, but the French, uh, by the end of the 1530s, were, were taking them in that field as well. The one technological advantage which the French never were able to match um, was the the longbow, uh, but the, although the French had tried uh, to train people in archery on a large scale, these attempts never really succeeded. What eventually uh, did for the longbow was you know, partly improvements in the design of crossbows, uh, so that they had essentially metal bows rather than bows of laminated wood, which increased their range. But above all, uh, field artillery, which made it extremely difficult uh, to deploy archers in the way that the English had traditionally done. What explains the evolution of the Dauphin from the hapless figure at the beginning of your narrative to, at the end, what you describe as, quote, one of France's greatest medieval kings, unquote? It's very difficult to know. Um, in his early years, um, he was overshadowed by a succession of extremely powerful and manipulative ministers, uh, some of whom uh, were not particularly good at their job. Um, I think that he learnt uh, from the experience of being manipulated and controlled by these people. I think that he learnt from his relatives, who were much more robust uh, about policies to be adopted. Uh, but the transformation of Charles VII is uh, its a very remarkable fact, and we really don't know enough about his private life to be able to confidently say what the answer to that question is. Why, in your opinion, was the Anglo-Burgundian alliance bound to falter? Because the uh, interests of the two parties to that alliance differed. Um, Philip, Duke of Burgundy, who had um, made the alliance with the English at the Treaty of Troyes in 1420, um, was counting on a rapid English victory uh, to settle the French Civil War and the International War. Um, when it got bedded down into a war of attrition, um, this involved Philip in very large expenses. Uh, he had to maintain a, a, a significant army, um, but it cost him a great deal of his revenues, uh, and sooner or later he was going to have to make a deal with the Dauphin. Um, that was one thing, of course, that the English could not do. But I think that it was inevitable uh, that, uh, faced with a very expensive war of attrition, Philip, the Duke of Burgundy, was sooner or later going to realize uh, that he no longer had much of an interest in supporting the English, especially as they did not themselves have the resources uh, to control the whole of northern France, let alone the rest of France. What explains the impact of Jeanne d'Arc on the siege of Orléans 
and the war overall? Well, I think the answer uh, to that question is basically morale. Um, morale in the 1420s on the French side was extremely low, with the single exception of the Battle of Bergeret in 1421. They had been defeated in every major battle that they had fought against the English. And they had um, uh, suffered the occupation of large parts of their country. And the experience showed that quite small English forces were capable of overwhelming much larger French ones. Um, what I think Joan of Arc did was to persuade the French soldiers that they could win, to persuade them that God was on their side and they couldn't therefore use. Um, Napoleon once observed that in war, uh, three quarters of the, the business is morale, uh, only a quarter is due to numbers uh, or, or weapons. Uh, and that three quarters may be a bit of an exaggeration, but there's no doubt uh, that the effect of Joan of Arc's intervention uh, was to transform the morale of the French and to um, diminish the morale of the English. We know this uh, from quite a number of sources from both sides. The great French commander, the Count of Dunois, who was in command at the Siege of Orléans, um, uh, said that before Joan of Arc, um, a handful of English troops could defeat a, a French army. Afterwards, the position was reversed, and the Duke of Bedford, towards the end of his life, when explaining what was going on uh, to the council in England, said exactly the same thing. Everything he said was going fine, until uh, the witch, Joan of Arc, intervened, and the uh, self-confidence and morale of the English plummeted. And we heard exactly the same stories from English prisoners of war when they were interrogated by their captors. Why did the Dauphin believe in Jean d'Arc? He was a well, relatively superstitious and credulous man. He was warned against Joan of Arc by people who felt that an illiterate girl of 17 couldn't possibly improve his fortunes in the war. Um, but I think you have to take account of the mentality of the period. The French attributed the long line of defeats at the hands of the English uh, to the loss of divine favour. They believed uh, that it was the sinfulness of France which had provoked these catastrophes. Um, there was a, a long-standing legend, a myth, that uh, France would be redeemed from her sinfulness by a virgin warrior, a symbol of purity, uh, who would turn the tables militarily um, and recover in favor of God. Um, now, this is, there's a good deal of evidence of these beliefs, but what is quite interesting is that um, we know from the subsequent inquiry of the, of the 1450s into the life of Joan of Arc, organized by the French government, uh, which, which went to Domremy, her birthplace, uh, and talked to many people who'd known her as a child, that she herself believed in these stories 
and came to believe that she was the virgin warrior in question. So I think that when she turned up at the age of 17 at the Deferous Court, there was a receptive atmosphere because she deliberately modelled herself on the Virgin Redeemer who was going to transform the fortunes of Florence. And some of those around the Dauphin that were prepared to accept her. At the time, while the situation militarily was pretty disastrous, uh, everybody believed that the city of Orléans was about to be captured by the English. Uh, and there was a feeling that things couldn't, uh, could, couldn't, couldn't get worse, so they might as well try anything. Well, there's very little doubt uh, that the um, the Dauphin's belief in Joan of Arc uh, was uh, not shared by probably the majority of his advisors, but there was a minority which did share them, and, and that proved to be enough. When uh, the French uh, succeeded in relieving the city of Orléans and in defeating the English at the Battle of Pâté shortly afterwards, um, many people attributed this to Joan of Arc and to the impact that she'd had. Uh, she actually made only a limited contribution to both of those events. But the prestige that she gained uh, enabled her essentially to take over the conduct of the Dauphin's strategy. It was Joan who persuaded the Dauphin against the advice of all his principal military advisers to march through 200 miles of enemy-occupied territory, uh, to capture Reims and to have the, uh, the, the, the Dauphin crowned king there, uh, the traditional coronation place that of the French kings. Uh, that was possibly her greatest contribution to the change of fortune. Once he had been crowned, people were more inclined to take seriously his claims to be the rightful king of France is that why you describe the coronation of Charles the seventh at Rims as quote an event of incalculable moment unquote yes it's it made many people on both sides of the political divide feel uh, that uh, Charles the seventh as the Dauphin uh, had become uh, was um was the legitimate ruler, the legitimate successor of the non-line of Capetian kings of France. And the English were obliged to put up a rival coronation, but they couldn't do it in Reims, they had to do it in Paris. And it was a, a miserable show by comparison. It, in war, the loyalties of subject populations clearly matter a very great deal. And this was one of a succession of events that transformed the attitude of Frenchmen to the Valois dynasty. Why did the fall of Paris mark, as you put it, quote, the end of the dual monarchy, unquote? It was because uh, the idea of the dual monarchy was that the same kings would rule in France and in England uh, though the two states would remain separate, they would have the same ruler. Um, uh, Paris was the capital of the traditional capital of France. It was uh, the location of all the major institutions of the French state. It was by far the most populous city 
in France and one of the most populous cities in Europe. Um, the loss of Paris meant that uh, Charles VII's institutions, his courts, his treasury, his um, uh, financial and judicial departments were all uh, in uh, were basically now covered most of France. Um, the English became, they retreated essentially into, into Normandy. Um, it was their last redoubt, the only part of France that they directly ruled with their own officials and garrisons. Uh, but there's a world of difference between ruling a province of France or several provinces of France and actually ruling the state. Uh, the English hardly pretended uh, that their new capital in Rouen was going to be the capital of all France. Why do you refer to King Henry VI as, quote, one of the most enigmatic English rulers of the Middle Ages, unquote? Uh, we don't know very much about what he thought about the war in France. He appears to have been a, a kind of early Christian pacifist. He uh, certainly was not enthusiastic about the war in France. He was not a particularly intelligent or strong-willed man who was very easily manipulated by his ministers and later by his French wife. Um, so it's actually quite difficult to distinguish between uh, what Henry VI wanted and what they wanted. Um, he, he simply wasn't interested in fighting as far as we can see. Um, and that was not just because he couldn't see the advantage of it. It was because he had other priorities, mainly of a religious nature, such as his foundations at Eton and King's College, Cambridge. Aaron. We don't know as much about Henry VI as we do about other weak kings, partly because he was so young for much of his reign, and partly because he was hidden from his subjects behind um, behind the, the court etiquette and the certain uh, amusements. Um, his French subjects, it was the same. Uh, he hardly had ever appeared in public but during the two-year period that he was in France. So he is, in some ways, an unknown figure. We know about his weaknesses. We suspect that he was guided by those around him. We can't be sure. Why were the English so reluctant to agree to peace with Valois France in the 1430s and early 1440s? English were reluctant to make peace because until 1437, the king was effectively a minor and not in charge of his own affairs. And they, his advisers felt uh, that they were essentially trustees of the heritage of Henry V um, for the infant king. And as trustees, they felt that they could not concede any of his rights until he became of full age. Unfortunately, when he became of full age, he wasn't actually much more effective or competent than he had been as a child. The other reason, I think, is the 
a remarkable reputation of Henry V, who had come quite close to making himself King of France. And the abiding problem of Henry VI was that his uh, government's actions in France were always being judged against the benchmark uh, of Henry V. Uh, the feeling was that if uh, Henry VI that could not achieve what Henry V had done, uh, then it must be because of treachery, betrayal, or just simple incompetence. Why did the English rule of Normandy collapse so quickly in 1449-1450? Because the uh, Norman defense establishment was starved of funds, Henry VI's principal minister um, told Parliament uh, when the uh, truce of tour was agreed in 1444 that uh, it wouldn't help their truce wouldn't help them unless they took advantage of it to strengthen the defences of Normandy. Uh, but as far as Parliament was concerned, the advantage of the truce was precisely to save them, the English taxpayers from having to spend money on the defence of Normandy. So what happened was that the garrisons were run down, uh, the uh, castles were left in disrepair, uh, and more generally, the English uh, lost the support of the Normans, which they had enjoyed for quite a few years after the conquest by Henry V. Uh, there were uh, major revolts, but some of which were uh, put down with considerable brutality. And the French, the English, were transformed in the course of the first 20 years of Henry VI's reign from a claimant to a French crown who claimed to rule Normandy by virtue of their claim to the French crown, they were transformed from that into a, a, an occupying power whose rule was essentially based on force. That meant that once the military force that the English were able to deploy in, in Normandy declined, or people abandoned them, particularly in the countryside, uh, in the towns, they remained loyal until almost the end. But in the countryside, the English lost the support of the population. The whole thing collapsed like a pack of cards for want of resources, manpower, money, and political support. Was the same thing true in the collapse of English rule in Gascony? No. Yeah. Uh, there were some common features, notably the lack of resources. The English spent almost nothing uh, on the defence of Gascony. They depended entirely on the Gascon nobility. But their ability to command support in Gascony really depended on the view that English rule was there to stay. I mean, they had, after all, uh, been uh, in, uh, in Gascony for three centuries, um, so that the Gascons were basically loyal to them out of habit, but also because they preferred to be ruled by a distant English king uh, than by um, a, a, a tax-grabbing and altogether more dictatorial French one. Um, that's all of this, of course, depended on confidence in the future. Once the, uh, the nobility of Gascony came to the conclusion that the English were not going to succeed in staying on in the long term. 
it was in their interests uh, to make make the uh, best terms they could with the stronger power. How did the Hundred Years' War change England? It encouraged uh, a rise in national feeling and a sense of national identity, as indeed it did in France. Um, it put an end to four centuries of profound English involvement in the affairs of France by virtue of the fact that for many years they had actually ruled significant parts of Western France um, since the 12th century. They had controlled first, first Normandy and then Gascony. Um, it made the English altogether more incident uh, and it altered their outlook on the rest of the world. And in the case of France, how did the Hundred Years' War change it? The main result was that uh, it enormously reinforced the power of the French monarchy. Um, it, uh, in order to defeat the English, it was necessary for the French monarchy to assume dictatorial powers to raise taxes with or without consent. Uh, that made the French monarchy much richer at the end of the war than it had been. At the beginning, uh, it acquired a preponderance of force within their own kingdom, which made it much more difficult for uh, the, a, a serious challenge to be mounted against the monarchy by like, the traditionally rebellious French nobility. On Essentially, by the 16th century, for the first half of the 16th century, until the Civil Wars resumed in the last 40 years of the 16th century. The uh, French kings were uh, uh, among the most powerful kings in Europe within their own countries. The origins of absolute monarchy really lie in the methods required to defeat the English in the 15th century. If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, what would it be? Well, I think that humanity changes very little. It, the technological means at its disposal change very much. But their ambitions, their prejudices, their faults uh, remain more or less unchanged. Um, uh, and I think that their faith in the use of force is an abiding feature of human societies, um, but which persisted. Uh, and um, I think the Hundred Years' War is a very good example of that. It is, after all, war and organized religion have, for most of human history until sometime in the 19th century, have been the main connective activities of mankind. Um, and they, the, 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 the strain of warfare is what creates states and certainly creates powerful states. On that observation, I would like to thank you very much, Your Lordship, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. You've been listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel of New Books Network. Thank you very much, Lord Sumpton. It's a pleasure.